The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is sponsored by U.S. Bank. Embracing what makes us unique creates more possibilities for all. Learn more at usbank.com diversity. U.S. Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Register for our next Diversity Insights presentation, Race, Politics, and the Workplace. This presentation will take place on October 29th at 12 p.m. Central Daylight Time. The presentation is an online video conference format. For more information and to register, visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org. We get to engage people, advance ideas, and ignite change because of the generous support from our community. If you find our resources meaningful or valuable, please consider supporting the forum today. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org donate. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org donate. Thank you very much for your support and generosity. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. Please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast, Building Belonging, Eight Pathways to Creating Inclusive, Joyful Organizational Communities with Howard Ross of Udarda Consulting. I'm Ben Roo, Program Associate here at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. What is belonging? As we've moved from diversity to inclusion, we still have mostly created environments in which historically marginalized people are adapting to organizations whose cultures are driven by the dominant group. The challenge is what kind of an organization can actually have all people feel like they are fully engaged. This podcast will attempt to describe how organizational cultures can be developed that created greater opportunities for authenticity, joy, and inclusion. It will begin by establishing the link between healthy organizational cultures and high performance, both by individual employees and organizations as a whole, then establish how culture impacts human experiences. You'll gain skills to identify how your organization can move from IDEA efforts, from fixing problems to building community, learn best practices that have successfully engaged their organizations and practices that lead to greater belonging, and develop a deeper understanding of the human need for belonging. Howard Ross is a lifelong social justice advocate and is considered one of the world's seminal thought leaders on identifying and addressing unconscious bias. He is the author of Reinventing Diversity, Transforming Organizational Community to Strengthen People, Purpose, and Performance, and the Washington Post bestseller, Everyday Bias, Identifying and Navigating Unconscious Judgments in Our Daily Lives. His latest book, Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart, won the 2019 Nautilus Book Award Gold Medal for Social Change and Social Justice. Howard has specialized in the synthesis of neurocognitive and social science research and direct application regarding diversity, inclusion, equity, and accessibility work. His client work has focused on the areas of corporate culture change, leadership development, and managing diversity. Ross has successfully implemented large-scale organizational culture change efforts in the area of managing diversity and cultural integration in academic institutions, professional service corporations, Fortune 500 companies, retail, healthcare, media, and governmental institutions in 47 of the United States and over 40 countries worldwide. 
In addition, Howard has delivered programs at Harvard University Medical School, Stanford University Medical School, John Hopkins University, the Wharton School of Business, Duke University, and Washington University Medical School, and over 20 other colleges and universities. Howard served as the 2007 to 2008 Janetta B. Cole Professor of Diversity at Bennett College for Women, the first time a white man had ever served in such a role at an HBCU. Howard founded Cook Rocks Inc., one of the nation's leading diversity and inclusion consultancies. He sold the company in 2018 and founded Udarta Consulting. Again, thank you for being here, Howard. So let's just jump right in. Um, what is this thing belonging? Like we've been hearing a lot about it lately. What, what is belonging? Sure, thanks, Ben. It's good to be with you. You know, um, I really sort of evolved to this place and looking, I've been doing, as you know, diversity and inclusion work now for professionally for 35 years and, and has evolved over time. And um, when we did a lot of the research that we did on unconscious bias over the years, one of the things I began to notice was that um, there was there was sort of related research that kept pointing me in a different direction, maybe not a different direction, but more expanded direction. And that is that there's this innate thing in us as human beings to want to belong, to want to fit in, to want to be part of groups. And, and we all feel it. I'm sure that everybody who's listening feels this sense of, um, you know, when you're with a group and everybody wants to do something and you're the only one who doesn't, that there's this pull to go along with the group or vice versa, when nobody wants to do something and you're the one who wants to do it, you feel like this pull to not do it. And, and so I became curious about that, particularly in the context of the polarization that's occurring in our society and the kind of tribalism that we're seeing. And, um, and, and what I came to was that this, this is, you know, a very important phenomenon for us to, for us to learn about. And that is, uh, and maybe one way to look at it is, um, uh, our dear friend and colleague, Dr. Jeanetta Cole, likes to say that diversity is being invited to the dance and inclusion is actually being allowed to dance. I like to say belonging is when you actually get to choose some of the music. When you're really enough of a part of a group or your voice matters at the deepest level. And so we might say, if we looked at you know, what characterizes belonging, we might say there are really five things we've noticed. One, one is a sense of shared identity. Um, another is a sense of shared destiny that what happens to you may very well happen to me. So if you're part of a company, for example, that you belong to and something happens to that company, it impacts everybody in the company. If you're um, a member of an identity group, let's say you're African-American and something, somebody gets killed like George Floyd or Michael Brown um, and you're that age or you're that kind of person, it's very possible that could happen to you as well. Um, then there's also a, a sense of, of interdependence and that is that what happens to you will affect what happens to me. Um, and then the fourth is, is usually a sense of shared values that we usually have a generalized set of values. That doesn't mean we agree on everything, but generally speaking, we have a, a sort of a container of values to hold us. And what we find that's most characterized in those kind of environments, and this is true whether it's a family that's really closely connected or that, um, that group of people you played ball with in college that you've never you know, stopped being connected with or a book group you've had for 20 years, um, there's an ability to be yourself um, that usually when people feel a deep sense of belonging, um, that they feel, um, they feel more freedom, more sense of, of an ability to be themselves. They're not going to be judged or, or discounted by the group or thrown out by the group for what they behave in. Now, in the workplace, we've, what we've learned is that, <clears throat> excuse me, through, through lots of research, is that belonging is incredibly important because employees who feel a sense of belonging, and sometimes it shows up in engagement studies, for example, tend to perform at a higher level. They tend to be more creative and innovative. They tend to be more inclusive. 
Um, they're less likely to leave the organization. They're more likely to represent the organization positively. Um, they're more likely to treat customers and other stakeholders well. And all of that, of course, leads to organizational success and profitability. Um, so, you know, what I would kind of put out to people is like, think of those times, you know, people who are listening, you know, think of those times when you found yourself agreeing with something or that you don't really agree with in order to get along with the group, or you, you, you've done something or not done something to go along with the group, or you assumed that something was just so because other people said it was so. I mean, you know, it's funny. I was just on a road trip yesterday because we, my mother-in-law turned 90 and we went to, you know, sort of have a safe distance visit with her in Connecticut and we're coming back and just noticing yeah, yeah thanks. that's very impressive yeah. 90. wow <laughs> yeah it is and she's sharp as a tack too so you know god willing i i, I could be that when i'm 90. <laughs> Knock um, on wood. god willing i'll even get to be 90. You know? exactly these <laughs> days it's nothing nothing is guaranteed <laughs> but but as we're driving back you know down from connecticut to virginia where i am now um, you know, we're in the, we're in traffic and the traffic's moving. And at some point I looked down at the, at the speedometer. I was going faster than I thought. I realized I was going faster than I thought because I was just going with all the other cars around me, you know, and, mm. and, um, and, and then if the cars had been slower, I probably would have been going slower to a certain degree. You know I mean? I think, and, and so there is this pull and, and what we realized was that while Maslow, you know, in his famous hierarchy, Abraham Maslow in 1943 created his famous hierarchy with, I'm sure most people know about his hierarchy of needs where he said, you know, that our physical needs are the first, our physiological needs are, are the first need that we have, and then safety, then belongingness, self-esteem, and self-actualization, that what we now realize is that Maslow may have been wrong, that belonging may be, in fact, our prime personal need, which is one of the reasons, you know, bullying is such a, you know, such a problem. In fact, we know that being excluded from group triggers activity in the same regions of the brain, the dorsal posterior insula that's associated with physical pain. So this notion of how do we create cultures of belonging in organizations and for that matter in society um, has become really important to me. So what are, so what are the eight pathways or best ways to create culture and belonging in the workplace or in an organization? Sure. Well, I think that one of the things that we have to recognize, of course, is that people come into our organizations already in somewhat of a fractured state relative to these different groups that we associate with. Um, you know, we have different, you know, we have different groups that we um, uh, uh, connect to at a deeper level. Robert Putnam, the sociologist from Harvard, uh, describes this as really two different kind of groups. They're groups that we bond with and they're groups that we can potentially bridge with. So we tend to bond with people who we co-identify with, who we're really, really close to, and we automatically feel a sense of belonging. So that might be your family unit or, you know, people who are your closest friends or people you might identify with racially. You know, so for example, you know, when African-Americans kind of walk past each other on the street and give each other the nod, there's sort of a, a, an implicit you know, message there, we're in this together, you know, that there's something common that we have together. And the same is true, you know, whether it's Jews or women in certain circumstances or LGBTQ folks or whoever, you know, often non-dominant groups have that sense of, you know, wanting to connect, wanting to feel like, you know, I'm not in this alone. It shows up less in dominant groups, of course, because our culture is um, generally reflective of the, of the norms and, and cultural patterns of the dominant group. 
And so, um, and then, but we know that the deepest sense of connections that we can create on a broader scale, and, and I mean organizationally, can't be limited just to those groups. Because if we only limit it to the groups that we have these bonded relationships with, then what we'll end up having is cliques forming in our organization and tribes that form within our organization. And some organizations, of course, look that way. And by the way, it can be about things too, like manufacturing versus sales, or um, yeah. you know, the people in this office versus the people in that office. So it can show up in lots of different ways. And so the key to really expanding our social capital, to expanding our network of operating, is when we bridge into some of those other groups, when we begin to consciously create relationships with people who are different from us. Um, and so this is why the work that we've been doing around diversity and inclusion, opening ourselves up to listening to each other and understanding each other at a deeper level, um, to mutually coming together as allies to work on issues, um, has become so important. And so we did study, um, you know, what are some of the ways uh, that we can make that happen in organizations? You know, how do we uh, get past this tendency? And, and of course, you know, our, our tribalism leads to us having biases against the other group. It leads to us having judgments against the other group. It leads to us challenging and threatening the other group. And we certainly see that right now in society around politics more than ever. Um, that uh, is no longer an issue of what do we disagree about from an issue standpoint. It's now you're one of those kind of people. So what we found was that there's certain things um, that can really contribute to, to developing this. And, and one is to start with a perspective. And don't worry, Ben, I will get to the, the eight pathways in just a moment. Oh, no worries. <laughs> um, I'm enjoying the conversation. Yeah. yeah. To start with this perspective that, um, that George Halverson, um, who you know, uh, I respect tremendously, former CEO of Kaiser Permanente and, and a real champion of, of inclusion, um, who did a brilliant job at Kaiser, really taking them to a very high level before he retired a few years ago, um, has identified, and that is that often, you know, when we're trying to get cultures together, there are a number of things that are there. It's, it's a little bit like a different form of Maslow, different sense of hierarchy, that at the core, it's usually because there's something threatening us. You know, why, why would we change? Well, we usually only change because something's not working about what's present. So maybe that might be the organization is not doing as well as we want. Um, maybe it might be that there are external circumstances. Certainly COVID has provided that for some of us, that sort of thing. There's often a common enemy, um, a threat from the outside. And that threat could be, um, you know, in other organizations, the threat of, of competition in the marketplace. It could be a threat to our business that we haven't seen, um, something new that we're not ready to deal with, that sort of a thing. Um, we, we usually have to have some sense of team, some sense that we're all in this together. And, and many, some organizations do this exceptionally well and others don't. You know, some organizations really do a lot of work on team development and a lot of work on, you know, understanding the purpose for us being here. And it develops a strong sense of us rather than that, that transcends the natural us versus them that human beings fall into. Because one of the things that we discovered in the, um, in the research is that, and also in the neuroscience research is that it's natural for human beings to divide between us and them. And so, you know, if we come in with an understanding of that, then we say, what do we do to, to undo that? And, and one way is by making sure that people understand the collective gain, that if we all come together and accomplish something, then, um, then that can kind of separate us from the us and them kind of thinking and focus us on what we're trying to accomplish. There's a brilliant sociologist or psychologist, um, Elliot Aronson, 
who back in the late 60s created what he called the jigsaw experiment, working with young children in the newly desegregated schools in Austin, Texas. And he found that when he tried to get them to understand each other, he wasn't getting very far. But when he gave them a jigsaw that they had to do, they had to get done in order to pass some you know, standard that the teacher told them. And the only way they could do that was by working with the other, the other group, the white kids and the black kids working together, that all of a sudden the kids put all those differences aside and rolled up their sleeves and got to work together. So this is one of the, um, one of the reasons that I think the workplace is one of the great ways that we can cross some of these boundaries. And then the last is that there's a very clear mission or vision um, for leadership loyalty. So, so that I will start with, that's the first pathway to belonging really that I identify, which is, um, and by the way, I want to also acknowledge John Robert Tartaglione, who um, wrote our search for belonging with me and, um, and provided, you know, some great research for it and uh, just a really uh, brilliant um, up and coming practitioner himself. But so the first is that that the organization needs to have a clear vision and a sense of purpose. And that is that people need to know why are we here? You know, what are we doing? Um, uh, you know, Simon Sinek's work on asking, on searching for the why is a great, you know, great tool in doing this. Um, because, you know, it, it's one thing to have people coming to work just because, you know, we need a job. It's something else to know that we're, we're doing something with this. I remember years ago hearing a story about somebody who comes up to three stone cutters, you know, in a quarry. And the first one is just kind of very you know, drudgery, you know, like just banging a hammer with the look of drudgery on their face. And the second one is a little bit more focused. The third one is really enthusiastic. And uh, so if somebody comes up to the first one and says, uh, what are you doing? He says, I'm banging rocks, you know, I'm breaking rocks. Goes up to the second one, he says, I'm making bricks. And the third one says, I'm contributing to building a cathedral to the greater glory of God. You know, that sense that wow, what I'm yeah. doing makes a difference and it patches into something bigger than myself is inspiring to people. And, and I mean, I think a lot of people in our field or in nonprofit work have that feeling, you know, that, yeah. the great, that you're working towards a greater good. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the challenges I think we found in a lot of diversity work or in people's reaction to a lot of diversity work, I should say, because I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting there was any negative intention on the practitioners who were doing this. But a lot of times when we focus on continually focus on what's not working um, is where we get diversity fatigue because people have only yeah. a limited tolerance just to be fixing things. And we know that where diversity and inclusion is concerned, you know, look at issues like race and gender, sexual orientation, these issues have been with us for a long time and they'll probably be with us when most of us are finished. We hope to keep moving the needle forward. Now what begins to happen is, you, you know, when, when you feel like people are trying to fix you, it actually triggers activity in that same pain region of the brain. And so, you know, at some point, diversity fatigue sets in because it feels like you're playing whack-a-mole. You know, as soon as you fix one thing, something else pops up. It's thing, I mean, we've just seen it societally. We thought we were in a much better place than we are. We got Barack Obama elected president, my gosh. And now we're in the situation we are now. I mean, how does that happen? And we know, you know, if we study history, we know that history is rarely linear. It's usually three steps forward, two steps back if we're lucky. Um, but nonetheless, um, that's where a lot of the fatigue come from. But when people feel like they're building something together, what's the culture we're trying to build? What is it gonna look like? How is it gonna serve this stakeholder group and that stakeholder group? How are we gonna to partner together? What accomplishment are we gonna have in the marketplace or if we're not a for-profit organization in you know, accomplishing what our purpose is, then that's really inspiring for people. And then the second becomes, the second pathway becomes, okay, you know, how do we create a container that we're gonna work in where we all feel safe? And so that involves, you know, setting clear rules of engagement with each other. 
um, knowing that it's safe for me to do this because everybody has agreed that this is the way that we're going to interact with each other. Um, to know what the boundaries are. It's a little bit like if you've got a child or, or a pet, a dog, let's say, and you've got a backyard and you've got holes in the fence all around. You can't really leave that child or the dog in the backyard unguarded for even a minute because they might wander through one of those holes in the fence. But when that fence is secure, when the boundaries are secure around it and they create a safe container, you can let your child play in the sandbox and glance out there every five or 10 minutes or so and know they're likely to be safe. You can let the dog go out to do its business and not have to watch it every minute. So creating that, um, that uh, context is, is so important as we begin to look at how do we, um, how do we create an environment where people can relax into it and know, I know what the rules are. I know what I need to do to be successful. I know what's likely to get me in trouble around here. I know what's what I'm invited to say. I know what I'm not invited to say. And the more we have those rules, the more people can. And that doesn't mean, by the way, the rules are rigid necessarily. They can be adapted over time. But the clearer they are for everybody and the, and the more consistent they are for everybody, the more we can create that kind of collective sense of belonging. Then the third part is that belonging at its core is more than a mental exercise. It's a very personal exercise. It's a very emotional. Um, the ability to feel safe is very emotional. And so that requires creating an environment where people really can connect deeply, where there's space for vulnerability, um, uh, a greater sense of consciousness. And this is where things like, you know, doing work about understanding your own biases are concerned. Um, uh, you know, the kinds of work that, um, that Brene Brown talks about, about shame and, and watching out for shame. Um, and uh, making sure that, that you know, people aren't shamed into withdrawing into themselves. And again, this is one of the challenges with some of the work that we started to do when I started to do diversity work back in, you know, in the mid eighties, um, a long time ago now, you know, where we used to do work with two by fours. You know, we kind of hammer on people until they saw the error of their ways and if people admitted their faults and cried in the room, it was very cathartic for everybody. But when you saw those people afterwards, a lot of times you realize they said what they needed to do to survive, but they were often left resentful or, or frightened. Um, and rather than opening up, they actually closed down. So while it was, it was a pretty effective tool for getting people not to say and do stupid things, it wasn't a particularly effective tool for inclusion because it often caused people to withdraw even more and protect themselves even more. So we wanna open up to a deeper sense of personal um, vulnerability and consciousness and, um, and, uh, and, and keep moving forward. Yeah, and then I, the, oh, please go ahead, Ben. Oh no, I was just thinking of those um, those videos from the from, from, you know from the eighties where doing uh, on like on Oprah or you know when they brought in the specialists and they you would inevitably always have you know the audience member or the or person in the classroom that would break down into tears after fighting the training for so long and then finally right. you know have that you know that breakdown moment um, and then yeah. you always wonder if that if that carried through through the rest of their lives like if they if that, what they learned stuck with them or if you know right after they left the show or the class they just went back to the usual yeah look sometimes sometimes it's authentic i don't mean to say that it's not but um but there are also sometimes when you know what i'm confronted with in that room is how do i survive this experience as opposed to really opening up into it and that doesn't mean by the way i want to be really clear i'm not suggesting we don't call you know, call out things for what they are. You know, if you if we see something, we have to say something. Uh, but there are ways that do it, and, and the ways to do it that open people up, and there are ways to do it that shut people down. And, and one of the challenges, of course, that we've had, and this is what all the research on bias has taught us, is that most of the time, you know, overwhelmingly, most of the time, people don't even realize how deeply these these um, belief systems are embedded in their 
psyche and embedded in their way of looking at things. And, and we know this is not just individual, it's cultural. I mean, we, we live in a country where race has been a fundamental issue of the way this country has developed for 400 years. We know that gender has been here for, you know, as long as there've been men and women, there've been gender dynamics. And, and, and we could go on and on. The point being that we're all influenced by that. We're influenced by the experience of growing up in this culture and we're influenced by how that has us um, see ourselves and how it sees uh, how we see other people and influences where we feel safe and who we feel safe with. It influences the judgments we have around other people. And the more we can be vulnerable enough and feel safe enough to look at those things, the more we can actually transform our way of looking at things. And that's why the fourth pathway is inclusion and enrollment. Um, and that is uh, to really look at how we can support and develop not just ourselves, but other people, um, how we can understand other people and really um, listen deeply to what their experience is, even if it's counter to our experience, and, um, and listen to it as their experience, and then figure out a way that we can, in interaction with each other, um, find both the commonalities and the challenges in the way we approach. Um, so take on being an active ally uh, when you're not in a group, particularly a non-dominant or underrepresented group, and even when nobody's looking, you know, it's, 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 you know, I mean, I'm not talking about performative allyship or what a lot of people are calling performative wokeness now, you know, sticking a Black Lives Matter bumper sticker on your cars and, you know, isn't being an active ally. I mean, it's great. It's nothing wrong with showing support in that way, but that is that all you do, you know, or do you, or, you know, a lot of corporations who have jumped out and done this kind of a thing, you know, are you also, you know, doing the kind of work you need to do in your organization to move it forward, um, to be willing to challenge the normative patterns of behavior and say, you know, we've been doing this this way for a long time, but without even realizing it, um, the way our schedule is set up, uh, it actually makes it harder for people who are parents um, and are responsible for their children, which largely means women in our culture, right or wrong, you know, largely that means women. Um, for example, right now, a lot of organizations um, are struggling with the fact that many of the people who, who um, work for them are, are, are homeschooling their kids, essentially, at the same time as they're also working. So um, can you have staff meetings at four in the afternoon or five in the afternoon after school hours are over so that those people, you know, those people can participate fully without having to feel like they've got, you know, I know I, I talk to my own children about my grandchildren and, you know, even, even when they're older, they still need some support sometimes and let alone my seven-year-old granddaughter who, who, you know, put her at the computer and my daughter-in-law goes to work and, and within you know, 15 minutes, my granddaughter is likely wandering away to do something else. And, and she's a good student. So, I mean, you know, so that, that's a great example. You know, are we willing as an organization and, and as allies to ask the courageous questions, um, to be conscious about equity and the decisions we make or, or to leverage some of our personal capital to advance others? You know, all of these things are part of the inclusion and enrollment conversation. And I know that there are, of course, many people out there listening to this who, who do this work and have you know their own body of work which speaks to this brilliantly and, and really supports people in this way as well. So, um, And then the fifth pathway is uh, to really consciously, both individually and as an organization, to uh, conscious, active, open-minded mind, thinking, to really put ourselves in a circumstance where we're really going through a conscious process of questioning some of our beliefs, you know, so we select an issue and, and, and really look at, you know, why that issue is important to us and understand why we have a point of view about that and see, is that consistent with how other people might have a point of view, you know, to really stop and evaluate the evidence behind our point of view and see whether it's really accurate and holds up the scrutiny or does it just fit our story? And I think this is one of the challenges that we have now is that 
Um, usually people have already decided their point of view in today's world rather than deciding their point of view based on evidence. They've already decided their point of view and then they cherry pick the evidence that, uh, that justifies that point of view. Um, you know, to really actively consider the evidence and opinions that run counter to your stance. Um, and, then, and then when you do that, to then look at your original stance and say, should there be some modifying here? Um, you know, uh, is there a way to, uh, to accommodate legitimate alternative points of view? No, I'm not saying that that means that, um, that there always are, because sometimes you may go through the whole process and say, damn it, I think I'm right about this. And I may feel really strongly about this. And, and uh, you know, a lot of times people misinterpret, especially politically, uh, when I talk about this, that say that, you know, well, it, it, this is like you know, false equivalency on both sides. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying, you know, are we really, are we really sure that we've, you know, checked out our point of view? And if we do, you know, because I have no problem having a strong point of view, as long as I remember it's a point of view. And that's really, that's really important. And then one of the things that we found is really um, helpful in doing this is when we can develop shared structures and forms of communication so that we've got regular ways that we share information that we know are very inclusive and that a lot of people have access to. Um, that organizations in which people have an opportunity to sit down and share um, you know, what's going on with each other and what have you heard and what have you heard and how does that information sync up. And uh, this is particularly true, by the way, Ben, in the environment we're in now because you know, we're all so Zoom fatigued um, that a lot of, in a lot of organizations, what I'm seeing is that people are, um, they're, they're kind of clipping things shorter and shorter. So we're tired of being on Zoom. So we'll have our staff meeting. And we'll just be, all right, hi, everybody. Okay, let's get right to work and get this done. You know? yeah. And what we miss are the water cooler conversations, the conversation on the way to and from the meeting, the cup of coffee or tea that you have with somebody after the meeting or the lunch you go to or the sitting around before the meeting, you know, you know, just shooting the breeze and talking about, did you watch the game last night? Or what was your weekend like? Or, you know, that sort of a thing. And, and, and also, they, how are you? You, don't, you look a little tired. You're doing okay. Well, you know, we don't know, see that through Zoom. So, so, you know, creating those shared structures can be really important. And, and it's especially important for leaders right now, I think, to, to reach out to people and check in and see, their, and see how they're doing. The seventh one is um, that we really, uh, that we honor narrative. Um, narrative is such an important part of people's lives. You know, the, I remember there's an old story I heard, uh, uh, I read one time, in, uh, it was written by Gregory Bateson, a you know, famous anthropologist who was once married to Margaret Mead and, you know, extraordinary anthropologist in his own right. And I forget which of his books I read it in, but there was a story that he told about, you know, somebody creates a computer and uh, they assert that the computer thinks like a human being, so they want to test it. And so they, you know, they set the computer in motion, and the computer, you know, spins and whirs. And this is the old days when computers took up a whole room. I think he wrote this story in the 40s or something in the 50s. And so the computer wheels turn, and all of a sudden it spits out a little piece of paper. And on the piece of paper it says, "I have a story to tell you." And he says, "Now we knew that the computer was actually thinking like a human being, <laughs> because that is the way." We, um, we think as human beings, we, we think through the narrative of our lives. And that narrative is of course shaped by our own personal experiences and the experiences of people like us, things that happen to people like us. So when we look at things like the 1619 Project, you know, the narrative of the black experience in the United States from 1619 to the present, it's so important. Now I know recently, of course, the, uh, um, the president has, you know, written this executive order saying that people should not be teaching that stuff and cannot be teaching that stuff in diversity work. Um, and I've in fact be caught in, caught in the crosshairs because of uh, a, a piece that Dr. Cole and I um, delivered at the, uh, Dr. Jeanetta Cole and I delivered for the uh, 
Treasury Department was was cited by this this extreme right wing guy, and, and he's written pieces on me actually today in the Wall Street Journal, before that in the New York Post, and all these different places, saying that this is about separating people, but it's actually completely false. First of all, so much of what he wrote in his narrative are either lies or misinformation or misinterpretations are taken out of context. I don't want to take the time to go through that, but the larger question is. You know, how do we how do we understand what's going on now without understanding what got us here? It's a you know George Santayana, the great historian, once said that that uh, those who refuse to learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. And and I think we see that you know that that we've had 400 years, and I'll just use this as an example. We've had 400 years of the history of African Americans in the United States. Um, in 17 generations, 345 of those years, uh, those folks um, were, were, were legally not considered, I should say you folks, Ben, were not considered to be citizens, were not considered to be equal partners in this democracy legally, either through slavery or then by legal segregation. It wasn't until 1964, just 66 years ago, or 56 years ago rather, that that changed. Um, and, um, and so to suggest that we could have that going on in this country for 17 generations, and then, of course, we know that the impact since then, it's not like we've had equity since then, as George Floyd's family knows for sure, as so many, so, sadly, so many others, that to, to suggest that that doesn't affect what we've learned about ourselves, what we've learned about each other during that time is just, is just silly. In the same sense as my family heritage is, I'm Jewish, and my family came from Eastern Europe, and we had significant Holocaust loss. And, and to suggest that that doesn't affect the perspective of Jews today in the world, having that so recently in our past, would be just ridiculous. And yet, that same period of time in 1945, um, we had Jim Crow in the United States. You know, we had people who were being abused in the United States. We had, after that time, we had Emmett Till, you know? Um, and in fact, of course, the Nazis took a lot of their practices from Jim Crow laws in the United States. So, so we can, you know, anybody who would say that, that you know, Nazism doesn't affect the way Jews see ourselves today and, and what we see as dangerous and, and potentially dangerous, would be foolish in the same sense to suggest that the story that African-Americans have lived through hasn't affected all of us as well. And, and I want to be clear when I say that, that doesn't mean we're bad people. It just means we've, we've been raised in a particular narrative in which so much is not talked about that we don't have a real sense of history. And the more we can honor that narrative and give it the attention it deserves, the better we'll have mutual understanding and be able to move forward. Now, of course, the last one is, in order to do this, we have to, we have, to have some tools, the last pathway, that is. Um, we have to have some tools uh, to um, deal with the places where we have conflict, to deal with how do we negotiate some of these differences. Because if we tell the truth about these experiences and we open up, as I'm suggesting that we do, if we're allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and transparent with each other, then we'll find is that we have vast differences. You know, as a white man, um, it was confronting when I realized how much privilege I have. Because it wasn't like I asked for it. You know, it wasn't like I said, hey, pick, you know, I, I want more than they do. But the culture calls on me differently, you know, especially as a tall white man, um, you know, that, that people, you know, I, and, I, and I see it in hundreds of little ways that it happens. I walk up to a counter and there's a, African, just recently this happened, I walk up to a counter as an older African-American woman standing there a few, few moments earlier. I walk up and the person behind the counter asks me first, can I help you? You know, um, you know, uh, we look at um, the fact that, you know, I have four sons, all of whom have gotten their driver's licenses. When I taught them to drive, I never had to worry about suggesting to them what they needed to do if they were stopped by a police officer to stay alive. And yet, 
you know, every person I know, every African-American I know has that conversation with their teenage children. Um, so these are all aspects that the culture has given me. You know, we, we talk about it as privilege and, and um, you know, and that sort of a thing. And that's why when people hear these words like white privilege and white supremacy and, and, and now more currently white fragility, you know, it sounds personal. That's why so many people I think are defensive about it. It sounds personal. What do you mean I have white privilege? I grew up in a trailer park or I grew up in a very low income environment. Yeah, that's all true, but the culture still calls us to be a particular way. And again, it has nothing to do with being a good person or a bad person. You could be the best person in the world, really a kind person and not even realize how much of this stuff is embedded in you. So, so we need to learn to negotiate this. And, and you know, one tool that I like to um, leave people with is, uh, it, it comes from a woman named Elizabeth Lesser, who is one of the co-founders of the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. And it's called Take the Other to Lunch. That's, I've adapted it a little bit, but it originally comes from her, so I wanna honor her contribution. Um, and that is you choose somebody who you have a different point of view with and you get together and you agree on a couple of ground rules. And the first is that you don't persuade, defend or interrupt each other. Um, so your purpose is not to, to convince them. Um, but, but instead, the second is to be curious, authentic and just listen to really get it from their experience. So you're really listening from the standpoint, I wanna understand you from your perspective and I want you to understand me from my perspective. That in and of itself is a breakthrough because most of the time when we come into conversations with people who we differ with, we're there from the start to convince. And so we listen for how we can make our point rather than listening to understand the other point of view. And then it's, very, it's a very elegant and simple um, system. Um, you know, but uh, like, I like to call it a profound simplitude. In other words, it's simple, but it may not always be easy, if you know what I mean, Ben. Exactly, um, I was gonna say, it, it sounds easy enough, but. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so, so let's say you have, and so then what you do is you set up and there are four different questions you ask each other. And, you, and it's best to try to give each other roughly the same amount of time. So in other words, if you take 10 minutes for this, I have 10 minutes, you know, um, because that avoids having one person talk over the other person, which can be a power dynamic sometimes. So. So, and, I'll, and by the way, I'll share an example of how to use this. I, I had a, a conversation I was asked to mediate between, after something happened in a, um, a community leadership program here in, in Washington a number of years ago, where um, there was an African-American man who, in the group who, who said in the group um, that at his church, um, they're, they're taught that, that being gay is a sin. And one of the gay men, which happened to be white, um, got offended by that and, and it ended up being sort of a big, you know, big upset for the group. And so they asked me to sit with these two guys and, and, and I did. So the, so the first question is, what are some life experiences that have led you to feel the way you do? And in this particular case, um, the, the gay man told his story and it was not an unusual story. Um, if you, you know, if you know very many people who are LGBTQ and that is he grew up, came out or, or realized who he was when, when, when he was a teenager, came out to his parents. His parents were, were generally pretty supportive. It wasn't 100%, but they were generally pretty supportive. And he went on to talk about how, you know, he dealt with different kinds of challenges in his life uh, because of that. And, uh, you know, uh, times when he felt scared and threatened and, and the like. And, and again, not unlike the experiences that many people have had. And now was with a partner he'd been with for 17 years and they had adopted two children and, and he was concerned about, um, you know, talk about that. And, um, and, then, and then the other guy shared that he grew up in an, in an environment here in the Washington, D.C. area where he had, he had been exposed to a lot of gang violence as a youth and, um, and that um, in his youth and, um, and four or five of his friends had died due to that gang violence. And he felt the only reason he had survived was because his mother insisted that 
he participated in the church. And, and so the church was his safety ground. And so he said, I don't question my pastor. And, and immediately the other guy could say, wow, well, I don't like your point of view, but I can get how you get there from that kind of environment. I could get how you'd want to feel like the person who you could, who, who you kept you safe your whole life as a person whose word you want to take as sacrosanct. And so the second, that leads to the second question, which is what issues deeply concern you? And, and in this, in this case, the, you know, the gay guy shared that, uh, that you know he felt threatened by homophobia and, and um, you know and, and diminished by people calling him a sinner just because this is the way he is and, and that sort of thing and the other guy shared that well you know um, you know I'm worried about what this means about the structures of families you know again not unusual comments but they were speaking from a different place now because they had already recognized each other's humanity while they still disagreed um, and then. The third is, what have you always wanted to ask someone from the other side? And this was one of the um, almost funny, uh, but also really poignant moments of the conversation because um, at some point the, uh, the straight guy asked the gay guy, he said, um, so when did you decide you were gay? And the gay guy looks at him and he says, uh, when did you decide you were straight? And the guy says, well, I never did. I just always was. And the, guy sa and the gay guy says, yeah, me too. And the straight guy at that moment for the first time got the difference between sexual preference and sexual orientation. And it was wow. almost like you could see his jaw falling, like I never thought of it that way. And from that point on, all of a sudden, I'm not saying his views changed radically at that moment, but from that point on, he was like, wow, I never thought of it that way. And that leads to the fourth point, which is the one that I've really added to this model and I think is a really important one, which is, is there anything you'd like to say to quote, clean up the past? Because in a lot of cases, <coughs> excuse me, even though, um, you know, even though um, we've moved on, we haven't gone back and taken responsibility for some of the things that we do before we move on to a new way of thinking. So, so in this case, for example, um, what the, the, the straight gentleman said to so the other guy says, look, I want to acknowledge that there have been times when I've listened to things like jokes or comments that people have made, which I realize now listening to you um, are really demeaning and that I certainly wouldn't want to hear any of those about me as a black man. Um, and yet I haven't done anything about that. So I want you to know, first of all, that I apologize for doing that. I want you to know that you have my word in the future. I won't do that. I won't sit there and listen to those kinds of things and I won't invite them around me. Um, so, so this is the kind of conversation that can be really healing. Now, now things don't change automatically, but, but about a month after this conversation, the two of these guys went back to the group of 60 or so leaders that they were in when the incident happened and sat down in front of the room side by side and facilitated a conversation with the entire group. So I think that there are possibilities for us to have enormous breakthroughs. But ultimately, um, you know, the key, the connective tissue to all of this is to be willing to realize that um, sometimes we can get so struck, stuck on being right that we forget about being happy or successful. So we need to be willing to acknowledge we're wrong and willing to apologize. And that's oftentimes when some of our calcified patterns break down. Oh, that is really powerful. And just a great story overall about, you know, this how important it is to just take, take a stop, uh, stop for a minute and just think about what the other side is, the person on the other side might have experienced and what led them to the views that they have. Um, yeah, just really be able to see eye to eye on things. It's difficult. It's, um, again, it makes it sound a lot easier <laughs> when we're just talking about yes. it. But when, but when you see it actually happen, it can be so powerful. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think that's why we're so inspired uh, when we see stories of people who have transcended their differences. So, you know, when we see um, 
I remember when Pope John Paul was, uh, John Paul II was, was, you know, shot by an infant assassin. And I remember seeing a picture of him sitting in the jail cell with that guy and talking to him, you know, um, or, or some of these amazing stories that we hear about people who, who can turn towards uh, these circumstances as, uh, as, as uh, learning experiences and, and forgiveness is of course a piece of this. Now I don't want to, I really want to be really clear that that doesn't mean that everything is forgivable, you know, or that, you know, that we should set this standard that's really difficult when people have been harmed and um, somebody taken from their lives, you know, when George Floyd's family has every right to feel whatever they feel, they'll never get him back. And just forgiving doesn't bring him back. So I can understand how they feel with him, where they might feel. Um, but the more we can reach across these barriers and be able to create some sense of mutual understanding, um, the greater chance we have to create cultures of belonging for everybody. Thank you so much, Howard, for that wonderful podcast and great conversation. If you'd like to learn more, please feel free to visit their website, udarna.com. You can listen to more forum podcasts at our website, forumworkplaceinclusion.org, forward slash podcast, or you can also find us on Apple's podcast, Spotify, Anchor, and Stitcher. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. And Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.